You're listening to episode 52, part two, with Dr. Larry Schooler. This episode is brought to you by the Water Now Alliance. Hi, this is Cynthia Kohler, Executive Director for the Water Now Alliance. This is the podcast that is demonstrating the power of communication and collaboration in the water sector. It's water in real life with my friends, the H2 duo, Stephanie Zavala and Ariane Shipley. Water Now Alliance believes that local leaders hold the keys to our water future. Water Now is a nonprofit network of over 400 city council members, mayors, water district board members, and utility managers nationwide supporting sustainable, affordable, and community-based solutions to water challenges. Water Now is a forum for collaborative action and a network for local leaders to learn from each other and connect with innovation. Water Now provides resources, tools, training, project and policy support, and case studies advancing sustainable water strategies. Its newest initiative is Tap into Resilience, a campaign to accelerate adoption of green infrastructure, efficiency, and other on-site water solutions. So join this unique network of local decision makers leading the way to a healthy and resilient water future for their communities. Visit waternow.org forward slash join or email info at waternow.org. Membership is free and open to decision makers responsible for everything from policy to programs to rates and who are the leading edge for all things water. If you didn't catch part one of our conversation with Larry, you're going to want to stop and go back one episode to 51 and check that out first. That's where we really dig into the why of public engagement and why it's so important and really a responsibility of water utilities and other government entities, not only to do, but to learn how to do well. In this episode, we get into some more of the nuts and bolts of facilitating public meetings. You know, what are some of the things that come prepared with? What are some things to keep in mind? And most importantly, what are some things that you need to have in your mind to keep your head right if you're going to be the one that's facilitating these meetings. So kind of the overarching theme I feel like of this episode is empathy. And empathy is a word that I feel like kind of gets thrown around a lot sometimes. And I don't want it to get diluted ever in the messaging that we try to communicate or we try and teach because it's just, it's so important. And it really is at the core of effective communication. So communication is not a person with a mic or a social media handle, it's it's a dialogue. And some of these dialogues, these conversations are gonna happen over topics that we don't agree with the person on the other end or these conversations can be difficult or uncomfortable to have, but ultimately this is how change is made and it can be done in a respectful way. People may not always agree with every, every decision that gets made that affects them, but they're much more likely to be supportive or have a greater level of trust in you and your organization if they feel like they were given an opportunity to have their voice heard and that it wasn't only just heard, but taken into consideration in part of the process. So we talk a lot about that. Larry gives us some great anecdotal evidence and stories from his own background and yeah, get your notepads out. Without further ado, let's get to the show. So sometimes I use this analogy or metaphor that the water industry can sometimes be like a woman's worst first date. <laughs> and because sometimes we only talk about... If you can see me, I would like to posit that I am in fact a man. <laughs> don't have really much to... I don't know if I'm going to be able to help use this or not. But I'll... Okay, so it doesn't just have anyone's first worst okay. first date. Okay, it doesn't have to be a woman. Um, it could be a man or a woman, but just worst first date. So like the other person only talks about themselves or only about negative things, you know, cause like you said, only when there's an emergency. So a boil water notice or a rate increase or something along those lines. So 
and we have what seems to be our own language and jokes that no one else understands, you know, and this results in public meetings that, that from the get go start with this whole like mob killing the messenger <laughs> vibe. So how do you diffuse that? And you kind of talked a little bit about it, but that whole like, Arr. yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And I think your example earlier of, I think it was Cincinnati where they went around to so many different organizations is very apt because it's, it's the, it's the agencies that have spent the time meeting with people when the temperature is average or low um, that I think are going to find those engage exchanges to be a lot easier to handle um, than the people where, um, where, where they've just, this is the first time they're hearing from the utility. Um, I, you know, I, I just think that relationships matter and, and that's, when people say like build trust, I mean, this is talked about a lot in the conflict resolution field, like the mediator needs to build trust. I mean, I, I feel like what they're really saying is a show that you know what you're talking about and B have some sort of relationship. In other words, not appear to be this kind of generic faceless entity that's just spewing information, but, but be a human being that's connecting with the other human being in a, in a meaningful way. So, I mean, one, one thing I would say about that is, you know, let's say, I mean, there, the example I was using before where the staff were getting uncomfortable with some of what the public was telling them, a lot of times that would be preceded by the public basically saying, you're going to, and then lay out this completely preposterous scenario of what they thought the government was planning to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're going to destroy my property value, or you're going to flood my lawn, or whatever the, the doomsday scenario was that they'd cooked up. Or even just, you can't tell me what to do. Right, you know? right. Um, that's, a, that's a good one. Um, I think that where I always start from is, and I know it's a, a now become kind of trite, but meeting the person where they are. So, so yeah. take the, the ones that we were just talking about. Um, sir or ma'am, if, if someone told me that they were going to flood my lawn, I'd be pretty upset. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if someone told me that you're about to destroy the value of a property that I've spent 25 years in, like I have my house, um, I'd, I'd be scared and angry and anxious. Uh, if you told me that uh, you were going to restrict my freedom or, or, you know, not allow me to do something that's really important to me on my property, um, I'd feel a lot of things about that. Um, so I want to explain to you kind of what I feel like we're trying to do here and see if that helps you to understand this in a different light. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying I'm going to convince you that you're mistaken. I'm not, I'm not even going to really try. I'm simply going to share with you what this looks like from our vantage point um, and why this is important to us. And hopefully your hearing that will help you to see it in a, in a different way. Mm -hmm. Not, um, I, I feel like the, the, the reflex in situations like that is defensiveness. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one defensive thing that often happens in public meetings is the no decision has been made reflex, mm. um, which I think is, is almost always accurate, um, but immediately makes people think that a decision has been made. It's, it's sort of like the, the huge watermark on a lot of Microsoft Word documents that says draft. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That, that you even need to write that, and especially in such a pronounced way, I think has people just immediately like, oh, they're calling this a draft, but maybe it's not so drafty. Yeah. Um, and I think the same goes for, you know, 
no decision has been made or that's not true. You know, someone might come back with that or that's, you know, sir, you're just way off base or, I mean, that, that those may very well be the legitimate thoughts that that person is having at the moment. Um, and I'm not, I'm not a model citizen when it comes to always saying the thing that I should say, as opposed to the thing that I'm, you know, feeling. Sure. Um, but I, I do think that, first of all, the more that the agency can anticipate what some of that is going to be and prepare uh, responses, um, the better. I mean, we, we, we always, you know, think in terms of a frequently asked questions document or part of our website, and there's no reason not to think about that in terms of a presentation. Um, so that's number one. But number two is, you know, lead with empathy. I mean, mm. um, I know the, yeah. I know guy. that, I know that uh, this this may air or this may come out a lot away after President uh, George H. W. Bush's funeral, but it was just yesterday when we we're recording this, and um, that was a big thing with him. Um, and I think that you know it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of people that weren't Republicans respected him um, because he just seemed to connect with people no matter what they felt about him, no matter what they felt about his policies, no matter how they disagreed on how they saw the world, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the cold war ending without violence, I think is a great example of that. I think he and, oh, yeah. and the Russians yeah. and the Soviets really related to each other in that way. So, um, <laughs> getting back from the tangent, um, <laughs> I just think, I just think that, uh, I'll it can be really George H. W. A shout out. There George you go. H. Bush, not George H. W. Well, I didn't finish <laughs> with the Bush, but uh, <laughs> but I think that uh, but I think that um, there are so many reflexes that can kick in when we're in these kind of tough public meetings, and so I think it's it's important to know what those are going to be. What are some of those triggers going to be, and and what can I lead with that's going to come across as empathy rather than. Uh, sort of serve and volley um, that I think will, will be kind of productive. But the other piece is kind of peeling back from that difficult room and thinking about what can I do to prevent even that room from uh, coming about. And I think that that's all in the, in the relationship, both with individuals in terms of constant communication uh, and with um, organizations. Real quick anecdote, you know, I'm, I'm struck by, living here in Fort Lauderdale, how often I hear from my kids' school. And mm. um, it's, it's so much so, I mean, we happen to live in the school district where Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is. And so oh, wow. Broward County schools have come in for tremendous criticism for what all went on with the person that, you know, is, is uh, on trial for that shooting, shoot those shootings and those killings. And, and I have to say that even though I, I'm led to think that there's some things that the school district could have done differently, mm -hmm. the fact that they have been so communicative with, with us as a family for now a year and a half it is kind of reason for me to kind of wonder if, if the criticism is really um, all, all accurate or not. And I'm, I'm sort of giving them the benefit of the doubt, I feel like, just because I hear from them as often as I do and I know my son's mm -hmm. teachers and I know the assistant principal and the principal. And I just sort of feel like these are people that I can trust because I know them because I hear from them a lot as opposed wow. to all of a sudden out of the blue, like don't let your kids drink the water at our school or whatever, yeah, like wow. something Good that would point. be like totally, you know, out of, out of uh, left field. I mean, they've had to make security changes at my kid's school because of the pressure from what happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. 
I don't think anybody's given them a hard time about that. Yeah. Not just because they want their kids to be safe, but because they trust the administration. Wow. You know, they wow. trust that because they've heard so much so consistently, both from central office and from the school itself, that, you know, they've got our best intentions at heart. So I don't want to take us too far down this rabbit hole, but I just, I have to ask this question because I'm a nerd and, and I have to know why, but you mentioned in those conversations where you suggested that they say, I'm starting to get a little uncomfortable. Um, does that work because it's kind of disarming to the person who's attacking them? I'm using air quotes because it's kind of like calling them out and like kind of making them say, Oh, like what I'm saying is impacting this person. So what I'm relaying to you on that is secondhand, but the answer is yes. I mean, they, they have told me that when they say something like that, they immediately get a reaction of, oh, I, that's not what I'm, I, I'm so sorry, like I didn't mean to, or right. mm. I'm just trying to get answers. Like they, they definitely try to take it away from you are a bad person to yeah. I just need you to help me, I'm upset. Yeah. Um, so at least it becomes depersonalized and more um, productive. Okay. Again, this is, first of all, strictly anecdotal, and second of right. all, secondhand. Um, yeah. I, I don't know that I've been in a situation, the, the, the thing that comes to mind in terms of a situation like that was having people in small groups discussing something and having one small group get heated enough that a man slammed his hand on the table with such force that it sounded like a gun had gone off. Oh, and so no. I then had to just go over and visit with him and with the woman that had agitated him separately and figure out a way to calm them down. Um, but, but I do remember saying to him something that might be relevant here, which is, I, I could have said, sir, we're not going to have that here. Uh, sir, you need to leave. You know, something kind of punitive. And, and I didn't. I said, um, first of all, I asked him to tell me what was going on. He's obviously upset. And then I said, um, what is it that you think we can do to enable you to kind of participate here? Because obviously, I mean, we can't, we can't do that, but what else can we do to kind of make this? Cause I understand you guys have a disagreement, but we've got kids here. I mean, we need to be, be cognizant of, of who's in the room and how to make this productive. And, and they both stayed. Um, I'm not saying that it's because of me that they did stay. I think though that, that had I, had I told him to leave, I probably would be hearing about it for days and weeks. I mean, he probably would have let yeah, somebody yeah. know. You an angry uh, email of a lot of people. Yes. And tweeted angrily. For sure. For <laughs> sure. So, um, yeah, lead with empathy. Mm, I love it. Okay, I want to know how do we get more people to show up at these public meetings, Larry? <laughs> <laughs> how do um, we get them engaged during this process? You know, just how are we going to get their feedback? Yeah, the, yeah there's so much there. Um, how do I get more than 20? <laughs> so there's, right, so there's, there's kind of the how do we get people to show up question. And I think the two things that the, the two or three things that come to mind are a compelling ask, a compelling invite, and then mm. the resources for them to participate. Okay, so let's do the resources one first. Is the meeting being held somewhere that's uh, got parking and or public transit and or bike and pedestrian? Um, you, you know, is it, is it a place that's going to be easy to navigate when I get there? Like I've had meetings at, at public mm. schools could be private schools, but, but at schools down where corridor, turn to the left, go down that hall. Open yeah. Door. It's like, it's like once you park, like that's half the battle. Like you actually spend <laughs> more time from the car to the room than you did driving there. Is it um, a good rule of thumb? Like if you have to have more than two directional signs, you're too confusing. Yeah, too confusing. Correct. 
And by the way, let's, let's, I mean, one project I was proud of doing was, was sort of inventorying um, all the spaces where I thought we could have meetings. And I tried to not limit myself just to like city facilities, for example. Um, so I, I definitely encourage people to look at even private facilities that they can get for reasonable amounts. Um, I mean, in fact, Stephanie's in the project, Stephanie talked about it. We were at churches. I mean, that's, that's fine. I mean, if they're available and reasonable, that's fine. Um, the key is to be, um, you know, in an accessible space. And I mean that both in a legal term, like accessible to every, you know, physical, uh, you know, handicap disability, but also accessible in terms of people being able to, to get to it. Um, and also not be wed, by the way, to starting at six o'clock. I mean, I, I've encouraged people to look at seven or early, 7 p.m. or before six, because five to six tends to be like the worst for mobility. So um, to not be wed to six o'clock as a start time, I think is, is important. The other components though of, of the meeting being accessible are um, simultaneous interpretation in another language or languages, um, which often means, it, it often means, I mean, best practice would be a headset that somebody could, could check out at the meeting and be listening to someone real time interpreting it. Yeah. Um, Ooh, yeah. And that's, expensive on the front end, but it's not so expensive over the length of time that you might be using it, um, especially if you buy it, the set rather than rent it. Um, but also uh, having activities with supervision available for children. Um, I, I said what I said earlier about not going to meetings that are during family time. I mean, I, I don't want to sit here and pretend that I would definitely go to a meeting on a topic of interest to me just because there were supervised children's activities. But I spent six months working on kind of a standard operating procedure for that very thing for, for Austin because I just think that we are missing a lot of participation from families who just think like, I don't want my kid to have a meltdown. I don't want them to be tugging on me the whole time. You know, I don't want to miss dinner. I don't, you know, just everything that goes into parenting that, yep. that public meetings often interfere with. Now, one funny thing on that is when I did one of my televised uh, town halls, a neighbor friend across the street tweeted, just gave the kids a bath and I'm brushing their teeth and I'm listening to Larry Schooler's disembodied voice in my ear, um, you know, because that was great for him. Like he could be the dad he needed to be, but also pay at least some semblance of attention to the topic because we were on TV. Um, nice. I love so uh, for what that's worth, um, how else to get people to meetings? Um, there's a big difference between saying the water utility, and I'll even go back to Stephanie's example in Fort Worth. I, I don't remember the specific outreach we used in that case. It's been a few years, but there's a big difference between saying um, we're having a meeting about water restrictions and we are working to address uh, an upcoming shortage in our water supply uh, and we need your help. Um, another, another difference would be we're having a meeting about bond referenda or, or potential bond referenda versus we have about $1.5 billion in, in needs in this community, but only 400 million to spend. How would you spend it? Um, the, the call to action is important, not just in terms of a, it being a call to action. I mean, first of all, that it's not just passive, like we're having this meeting, but, but a call to action, make your voice heard kind of thing, but also in, in terms that, that make sense and are going to matter. Um, and so I just think that most of our meetings are kind of titled and framed in a way that doesn't create any sort of sense of urgency. And I think that's important. Um, the last thing I would say is, um, 
don't be afraid to sort of co-host with a variety of different other co-hosts. I mean, I think that certainly having a table kind of presence at other people's events is great. Um, I mean, that's not as much as having your own meeting would accomplish, but it's still something, especially if you can come up with a, a real short exercise or survey for people to take. And I've done a lot of that. Um, but I think also even just the idea of co-hosting an event, in other words, the meeting is co-hosted by, you know, I don't know if they still have it, but steer Fort Worth and whatever, um, or it's hosted by the chamber and, and the city, or it's hosted by, um, the interfaith Alliance or the Dis, a less a disarming group. Yeah. Like a disarming group and a group that's, that's got sort of built in trust, you yeah, know, that, right. that, um, I'm going to open an email from, you know, mm-hmm. I think the, the challenge oftentimes with getting people to meetings is where they're, where they actually end up hearing about it. And if they hear about it in passing on the news, are they really going to change their schedule to go to it if they don't even really fully know what it's going to be about and think it's going to be bad as compared to opening it up from their pastor or their clergy or their chamber president or their HOA president or whatever and being like, well, I'm going to open this because I care about this organization. And even if they're just the messenger saying, go to the city meeting, that could still be more valuable than seeing it in passing or trying to decipher the public notice or whatever. So um, I think a lot of it has to do with how people hear about um, the meetings that are that are taking place, um, but the last thing I would say about that is just to not. Um, th- there's almost no scenario that I can imagine where a strategy of doing engagement just with public meetings is going to work. Um, mm. The only the only scenario I could think of is maybe if you're dealing strictly with a neighborhood issue that only people in that neighborhood would be impacted by or care about. Right. Um, Maybe in that case, you could get away with just public meetings. But in almost every scenario I could think of, you're going to want to have other ways of of, uh, Mm -hmm. allowing people to engage. So you have this very calming, composed persona, and anyone listening can kind of hear that in your voice. And when you it's a good thing you didn't. It's a good thing you don't mic it up like my house at (laughs) time or get out of the house time. (laughs) um oh whoa hey (laughs) when you when you facilitate you i mean because i've seen you have you like run the room and is that innate innate or is that practice or both like how can someone get better at being a stellar facilitator well first of all um i mean it's nice of you to say um my dad is an attorney my mom trained as a social worker so i really think that that mashup is a is a good one for a facilitator Mm -hmm. because um my dad and I both have these kind of deep kind of forceful voices. Um, and my mom being a social worker is, is definitely, you know, big on empathy and stuff. And so, um, I feel like that combination has been very helpful to me, but for those who don't have parents in those two professions, um, (laughs) I mean, I actually, it's funny you asked this question just because I do a lot of facilitation training of other people and I, I structure the training in such a way that the the upshot that I'm trying to leave them with is that you, <clears throat> you can do this, that that I don't know you and I still think you can do this. Now, I do this little what I call pop quiz at the beginning, and it's 10 questions um, that I think, and I'll have to look them up, honestly, because I can't remember them all, but they are designed to kind of leave people at the end with a sense as to whether they've got it down and and they really don't even, they could teach the class to me mm-hmm. uh, or they really should, you know, pay particularly close attention. Some of the questions are things like, you know, how good are you at staying on task and keeping a group focused? Um, 
but some of them are things like, uh, what happens if you get criticized? You know, how do you manage um, being criticized even in the course of a meeting on your performance? You know, some people will criticize, I mean, literally will criticize my facilitation in the moment that I'm facilitating. And so, you know, obviously I've got to thicken my skin in those um, cases and, and be able to roll with that. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I guess I would say, do I think that there are some verbal and nonverbal and vocal and other kinds of, of things that are helpful to facilitators? Sure. Um, and I coach people on that. I mean, my training includes simulation and, and kind of role play mock, mock facilitation. And, and I certainly am giving people feedback on that. Sure. Um, but I, I have noticed that um, like when I'm in situations where I'm, where I'm being facilitated, um, it's, it's interesting sometimes how I think I'm better facilitated in ways that are different than how I would facilitate, if that makes any sense. Like I feel sometimes like, I mean, my dad, my dad is not a, it's funny. I'm a mediator. My dad's an arbitrator and that's perfectly, <laughs> wow. that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, like he's not the kind of like, tell me how that made you feel. You know, he's more of the, <laughs> like, he's more of the, so what you're saying is, you know, kind of guy. Um, You've had a lifelong practice right there. Yeah. Well, and so, um, so sometimes like I need somebody who's going to, I mean, I, I've, I've worked with professionals where I need somebody who is just going to kind of really get like inside of what I'm saying and pull out what I'm really trying to say. Um, which isn't always the way I approach things as a facilitator. Like I'm not always sort of forcing someone to get to, a, you know, encouraging somebody to get to the point faster or whatever. Sometimes I'm really letting it breathe, but other times I am trying to get them to kind of, so what I hear you saying is this. Um, so I, I guess the answer to your question is I really don't think any of it is innate. Um, and I don't think that it's something that can't, and I don't think that it's something that can't, um, be acquired, um, by a variety of folks. I mean, I, I think it takes more than anything else. It takes a commitment, not necessarily to a bunch of training. Um, there's plenty of training out there, but I, I don't know that it's about number of hours of training or being a certified professional facilitator, which is a thing. Um, I, I think it's more about the commitment to some of the things that have to be done by facilitators to be successful, um, to be patient, to be willing to listen to people say things that you completely disagree with and maybe even find offensive. Right. Um, and I, and I, I don't mean to sort of add that level of edge to it, but when you're facilitating, I mean, I facilitated as an Austin resident on topics in Austin for a number of years. And so I was actually facilitating on things where I definitely had an opinion. Mm -hmm. I didn't share that opinion with anybody in that meeting but people would say things and I would think to myself, like, what the heck is that guy talking about? You know, or that's ridiculous. Um, knowing full well that, that I would never, you know, say something like that. Um, so I think it's much more about, like I said, sort of an inner, an inner commitment to a certain set of practices and, and styles without it being something that, that you can't do because your personality or your, upbringing or whatever um wouldn't allow it right so. well and that to be honest after having spoken with you for longer i kind of feel like it's because you lead with empathy and i feel that that's genuine and it comes across and i feel like that's very that's kind of the calming aspect of to yeah. it is you don't come in hot you know you come in calm right. and like 
you convey that empathy like so genuinely that people are like, okay, this guy is not going to take a side or he's not here to take a side. Like he really is trying to like foster this. this well, and, and I think that there's, I appreciate you saying that, but I, I think that there's leading with empathy in terms of the words I say, but then there's also like, as you just put it, like if, if I don't, if I don't feel some of what it is that I'm saying, it doesn't really matter. And, and probably someone can tell, like if I just say like, I understand your pain, sir. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, people used to joke about that with with President Clinton before he got off. Feel your pain, you know, like. Oh, good. So yeah, that was good. So, uh, so I think that it's especially when I was facilitating in Austin, and it was about stuff that was going to matter to me at some point. It was, it was. I won't say easier, but it certainly was like more accessible yeah. for me to hit that point because I was. Uh, feeling some of what they were feeling about that issue. Now, most of the time when I'm facilitating, I'm not in that circumstance. Um, but I try very hard to say, and, and this is especially important, I think, as a, I'll just be blunt, as a an educated middle-class white man, right. um, there are people that look at me as soon as I walk in the room and assume I won't get it. Um, and I had a couple of interesting teachable moments very early in my career where where that was the that was the charge out of the gate, you know, that I just, I don't get it. Um, and I'm, I'm, I honor their opinion and, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and debate whether I do or don't get it. Um, but I also think it's, it's just so to be, to do this work in the country that we live in and for that matter, the world that we live in, um, you just, you, you have to find ways to get it. And, and you also can, can, can uh, recruit the person talking to you who, who may think you're not getting it to say, please help me. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I want to understand this. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to tap into what it is that you're feeling. And, and you're, you're not feeling like I get it is, is upsetting to me. So I really want really to understand where this, is, um, where this is coming from. It's funny because there's a, there's a that friends of ours that are going to these community meetings, it's, it's around a, an affordable housing development um, that they don't want to see come into their neighborhood. And this, um, this is something that I've thought about a lot because in Austin, we lived in a neighborhood that was, that was mixed in terms of income and had affordable housing uh, within the neighborhood. And I've, I've often thought to myself, like when someone is so, you know, resolutely against um, something that I'm in my personal life, like very much supportive of, or, or, or would be in, if you ask me, like, what, what words will I use? Like, mm-hmm. what will I say? I'm talking about as a facilitator, not as their right. friend. Not a thing. Yeah. As a facilitator, like, what would I say in order to, because I don't want to, I don't want to lie, but I also don't want to be as, as Stephanie said, like in, in genuine, you know, insincere. So, you know, I can see why you would think that or, um, I, I'm, I'm sure that the idea of being unsafe is, is really upsetting, you know, like mm-hmm. sort of, uh, precise language that doesn't come off as being like talking point rehearsed, but still like carefully chosen so that I'm not saying like, man, that would suck, you know, if I don't <laughs> think that, um, yeah, or whatever. So anyway. Well, I, I know someone whose three core values are, are to be kind, genuine, and to have empathy. And that's, I've been thinking about that a lot as you've been talking. And I'm like, oh, those sound like some pretty powerful core values for somebody who's doing the work that you're doing. So, 
One of the, I'm sorry, Stephanie. One other thing I wanted to say about the, the empathy piece is I've had a couple of funky situations where the client, meaning the, the agency and the staff at that agency, got uncomfortable with my facilitating because they thought I was taking the side uh-huh. of the public that was being critical. Okay. Um, and I think that that's important um, yeah. I, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a learning you know, opportunity because, I mean, let, let, me, be, let me be blunt about it. Like I, I was, I would say, almost removed from a project partly because of this um, issue that, that some staff members were having where they felt that I was just doing the bidding of certain activists, I guess. Sure. Um, and I, I think it's really important. People talk all the time in facilitation and public engagement about neutrality and objectivity. And I think it's, it, it needs to be understood in this way, which is nobody is neutral as an individual. Like none of us are neutral people. Like we have opinions, we have values. Um, and nobody is objective on all, on all things. Um, in fact, on most things we're not. Um, the key is to demonstrate that in the work that we're doing. And so I try to let the client know, staff or whoever going in, like there are going to be times when I'm going to press you for an answer to something because I think that the citizen isn't satisfied with what you've said so far, or they didn't get what they needed out of that answer. And I need you to know that I'm, I'm doing that because I want you guys to be successful and get a better outcome with that member of the public, not because I'm on their side. Um, and I think that that's, that's important because if the empathy comes across as like, well, you're just this, you know, touchy feely, like citizens advocate, you know, um, it's the difference I think between being kind of an ombudsman and a facilitator, like an ombudsman really is supposed to be kind of the public's voice Mm -hmm. to an organization. Like NPR has an ombudsman and I feel like she's really meant to convey something to the organization. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not me. I mean, I'm, I'm not in that role most of the time. So I just think, um, the client, the utility or whoever it is that I'm working with, um, needs to know that about me so that that kind of doesn't get misunderstood in the moment. Yeah. I mean, you know, instead it didn't take a great deal of courage to, you know, be, to have those conversations and to build those relationships, but that, you know, nothing worth having is easy. So for sure. Um, so before we get into our lightning round where we ask you some questions, including what your favorite book is, we know that you're working on a book. So can you tell us about that? And, and I think it's on how the public can help resolve big conflicts. Yeah. So um, some people who are listening may be familiar with kind of Nelson Mandela and South Africa when everything was changing there. So, of course, there was a lot of racial animosity and the Nelson Mandela took over. And there was the potential for there to be greater strife because now, you know, blacks were in position of power that whites had been in before. But rather than undertaking a lot of of sort of war crimes tribunal prosecutions, he chose to undertake something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And this is something that other countries had done before, but I really think South Africa made it famous. And it was this idea of of appointing uh, non-jurists, not judges, but or jurors, but lay people to openly gather public and sometimes private testimony and statements from people affected by what had happened there, and then to render um, recommendations and, and judgments that were not sort of binding on the government, but were meant to be kind of like advice as to what to do to move South Africa forward. Um, this is something that has now gotten picked up in two, di- well, depending on how you define it, 
this is something that's gotten picked up in two major places in the United States and then in Canada. And as I got interested in this, it was partly just kind of in its own little silo, like Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that's kind of cool. But as I got into it, I realized that what really fascinated me was that anybody could come forward and participate. Um, that it wasn't about being subpoenaed or called as a witness and then sort of carefully cross-examined. It was actually an, an open call to participate in moving the city, state, or country forward. Yeah. And so that's what the book is really about. It's kind of how a community or a state or a nation can work as a country or a state or a community to address something that had been haunting those places for uh, quite some time. Uh, so a conflict that goes beyond just a single officer involved shooting or a particular land use case or a transportation challenge, but something that's been an issue for, you know, years, if not decades. Um, so my hope is that people will read it and think, this could be an interesting way for us to work through some things that are really hard for us to talk about and work through. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's essentially the publication of my dissertation, which means that it could end up as a doorstop. Um, <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out how to write it in a way that people will read it uh, beyond the professors that are, are you know, uh, reading my dissertation. But I do believe that it'll be written in a way that'll, that'll uh, at least it could get assigned to, uh, students um, and they. Might I know a writer. <laughs> you let us know. Uh, you let us know when it comes out, and uh, we'll be sure to come talk about that again. Yeah, I can't that wait. Sounds great. Sounds exciting. Okay, Larry, I want to know what is besides the book that you're working on. <laughs> what is the favorite book right now that you can recommend to all of us? Oh well, I, I mean, I literally stayed up until two o'clock in the morning and almost made it all the way through in one sitting. This wow. novel called uh, "The Great Believers," which um, is on a bunch of lists. I mean, if you if you Google it, yeah. um, I mean, if you'd ask me like my favorite book of all time, I'd probably go with like something by Mark Twain or maybe All the King's Men or something. But if okay. if it's like what I just I'm engrossed by now. This is a novel that's, I, I think it's a, I think it would be considered a historical novel because it's basically set in the mid eighties when the uh, AIDS crisis was wow. at epidemic stages. And it's really ironic. I, I mean, I, I know that it came out earlier this year, well before George HW Bush passed away, but it's really interesting to be reading it right as we're talking about Bush and Reagan's legacy on AIDS. Sure. Um, and so mm. And it's got a ton of like family drama and, and amazing like connections from two different generations. And I mean, as, as I said, I mean, I started at like 8.30 and, and at two o'clock in the morning, I just thought I should probably sleep <laughs> not knowing that I, I'm not feeling tired and not wanting to stop mm -hmm. reading. So yeah, that's probably yeah. a sign of a good, a good yeah, book. So, a good book. Um, so yeah, so I, I recommend that uh, uh, without reservation. Yeah. yeah. Okay, what's something that drives your productivity? Well, I mean, stereotypically, I think a lot of people are more productive when they exercise, and, and I certainly think that. Boring. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So that's why I'm going to give, that's why I have to think of something else. Uh, I can't, I don't ever get to exercise. So. We need something. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not a model. I'm not a, I'm not a good, uh, yeah, I mean, my exercise can be once a week just or kidding. five times a week, and, you know, everything in between. Um, but I do, I mean, I do find because I, like when I work out, I basically listen to water in real life or something like yeah. it. And so, uh, so invariably like, because I'm sort of 
thinking more about whatever it is that I'm listening to and I'm really listening, like there's not really any other distraction. Um, that's a, that's a powerful time for me to either generate an idea or think of something that I should, you know, do later on. Um, you know, I mean, I, there's a couple of things that I do that are very particular to me that are, you know, that, that make a big difference, like, um, prayer and, and sort of Bible study. Um, nice. um, you know, and, and it's nice because no matter where you live now, uh, you can find that, you know, not just in person, but, but virtually. Um, I also, I was joking earlier about the, the number of pages taken up by public notices because I, I mean, I have the newspaper delivered to my doorstep, um, much to my wife's consternation. And, uh, <laughs> I, I find that that is really good because sure. I mean, especially when you read the New York times, um, but even when you read the local paper, you're just, it's impossible to read them and not have some impulse to do something um, to respond to what you've read. Now, am I saying don't listen to NPR or watch CNN? No, no. I mean, I'm not. And those other media outlets can have similar kinds of impacts, especially NPR. But mm -hmm. for me, I just find that being able to, to read it um, and the level of depth that, that a paper can often go into um, matters and it's it's not going to happen for me if it's online only because i'm just online too much and so i don't yes. i don't want to pull up the computer when i first wake up in the morning um right. so that's why it's important to me to take the paper you know and hold it um and that's true by the way for i mean i find this sort of disheartening like a lot of times when i travel um it takes a real effort to get the local paper yeah. um which is a whole other topic but like i, I just it's so important to my productivity when I'm traveling because not just like psychologically, like I read the paper, but like I've got to have something to talk about later in the day with whoever I'm dealing with who lives there. Yeah. Um, and most of the time what's on the local news, like on TV or on the radio even is not something that they're going to want to talk about. Yeah. So, um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's productivity, like, mentally in terms of that but also in terms of just like i need something to break the ice with whoever i'm working with later that day yeah, so. love it well i love that you kind of perfectly segued about getting empowered or pumped up by reading the paper and feeling called to action that's actually my final question is that you know with i'm sure you're familiar with doing any kind of engagement or education and outreach you know we have people that will say well who cares if I change? I'm just one person. I, you know, I can't make a big difference. I mean, I think about like voting even like I'm just one person, but you know, we obviously disagree with that. And we believe that one person making a change can be contagious and cause even more change further down the road. So what is the one call to action that you're most passionate about that you believe could ultimately change the world? Some tikkun alam for you. I'll throw that yeah. in. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I guess I'll answer it with an anecdote that hopefully will get me to a real answer, which is <laughs> that, um, yeah, I went to the Miami Dolphins game the other day with my father-in-law and we had the worst time getting home. Um, I mean, it's so silly. I mean, most sporting events can be a challenge, but this was an epic challenge. I mean, I'm talking about a 30 minute ride to get to the stadium became upwards of 90 to 120 minutes to get home. Mm, and, and it had actual, and it had actual real consequences. My mother-in-law is disabled. And so 
the aide had to leave a full hour before we got home because mm. of that. Mm. Um, now, nothing bad happened, thank God. I mean, I'm not trying to paint too dramatic a picture, but it was it was upsetting beyond just like, I don't like traffic. Like it was, it was actually like had real consequences. And so, you know, I think most people would be like that stunk. I'm either not going to go to the dolphins game again, or I'll Uber there or just some like fairly low level change they would make. Um, this nerd, uh, <laughs> wrote an email to his own state rep and state Senator and the state rep and state senator that rep the area around the stadium and the county commissioner. Um, and so that you're not totally freaked out, the reason that I, <laughs> the reason that I wrote to the state people is because they closed Florida Turnpike. And so it was like, why did you do that? Like, what, you know, I used the pike to get there. Why did you close it as a like, primary way for us all to get out of there? Right. Um, and to the credit of my own representatives, they've already responded. And within wow, a day or that's two. awesome. Now, I don't have like a definitive answer yet or anything, but I am pleased that they responded personally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there was also a, a story that I saw and sent to some friends recently about a nine-year-old, I forget where, I'll have to find it, who discovered that there was a local ordinance that essentially banned snowball fights. I've, I saw the headlines for this. Um, and I don't, I don't remember how it was written. I mean, it didn't, I don't think it literally said like, thou shalt not throw a snowball, but it was, <laughs> it was definitely like construed in that way. And so this nine-year-old ended up speaking before city council and they repealed the darn thing. I mean, they figured yeah. out a way to permit snowball fights. <laughs> I what see a, where what you're going, brave, Larry, and I like what it. What a brave political, you know, move that was. Um, He's got a but I mean, the, the upshot, I guess, would be that, like, I, I defy someone to sort of walk around wherever they live or work and not find something that they think should change. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, they walk along a, a sort of urban street and see, you know, a, a really high-profile homeless presence um, and think about what needs to happen there. Um, they are stuck in traffic and they think about the mobility piece. They, you know, are living on the outskirts of a community because they can't afford to live closer in, you know, and can't find affordable stuff. There's, there's something um, for everybody. And if for some reason there's not something for you personally, there's probably something for someone that you care about mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that needs to change. Um, and I guess in my world, like the key is to figure out who could, potentially change it most readily and contact the person. Um, there's a lot more to it than that because I think that the reality of how change happens in America is that it takes um, lots of people thinking the same way. It also takes some um, money um, and some other kinds of influence. The ballot matters and that everybody should vote in every single election that they're eligible to vote in and that they can have influence beyond it and that they should do all that they can to leverage that influence. So that is one of the most, uh, one of the least concisely worded and, and most sort of inarticulately rendered answers to that question probably. But I mean, I just, you know, I don't, I don't think that that was something that my parents taught me to do, but they certainly took me yeah. to the ballot box, you know, from a very early age. And I certainly was aware of, who my elected officials were at a very young age and got fortunate enough to intern for one or two of them. So, you know, I just think um, 
it's not that they're sitting around by the phone waiting to be waiting to be you know contacted, but they are wanting to make a difference in the lives of people who need it. One other final story. So there's a there's a city in North Carolina near where I was living at that time that was deciding whether or not to go to single member districts for city council. And so I was trying to figure out a way to tell that story. And I found an older man who uh, from his home could get in his motorized uh, wheelchair, I guess, Mm -hmm. and get all the way to the store. And that was the way I opened the story because essentially the point was that his city councilman who rep who, who because of these changes now represented his neighborhood and, and whom he knew had made something happen that he had been trying for years to make happen before that. Mm. And so that to him was the significance of, you know, representation or whatever, not yeah. some abstract, like how do we draw the lines and are they compact districts enough or whatever, but it, it mattered that someone listened to what he said he and did something. Life, yeah. That's right. That made a huge difference in his quality of life. So I, I just, I guess the, the, the core message is um, without knowing it, you have a lot of potential in you to find ways to change your or someone else's world. Um, so go start. Well, we dig that 100% because that. we believe that one and even better, two people can start a revolution. So that's what we're, that's what we're aiming Viva. for. This means war. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for that. I love that. Definitely. Uh, the pleasure is mine. And, and, you know, I appreciate the interest from folks listening, uh, in this, in this particular aspect of their work. And, you know, at the risk of ending on a cheesy note, I mean, you know, it's so easy to take for granted the, you know, widespread availability of drinkable and usable water. Um, you know, especially when we, uh, when you, when it's very clear how many parts of the world don't have it. Um, Mm -hmm. so for those who are listening that work at a utility or work at a place where they provide water, you know, we really appreciate that. Um, you know, good stuff. Thanks for the water. All right. right. You're going to make me like tear up. (laughs) Keep it together. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Never miss out on future episodes by signing up for the Water Nerd newsletter. Found at the h2duo.com forward slash newsletter. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore h2duo. We share all of our new episodes there as well as in the newsletter. So whether we come across your feed or in your inbox, be sure to share episodes with your friends, family, colleagues, fellow water nerds. Help us spread the word. We hope you learned something new today, got a little inspired, or did something that brought you one step closer to your goal. Until next time, remember what one of our favorite quotes says, Those who tell the stories rule the world.